Let's open our Bibles together to the book of Romans, chapter 9. Romans, chapter 9. And I'm going to read and preach verses 19 through 23 this morning, where the Apostle Paul addresses a potential objection to what he's been saying. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And he refutes that objection by saying, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Goes on to illustrate his point with the famous analogy of the potter and the clay. And the point he drives home is this. God has the sovereign right to do whatever he wills with his creatures. And he has prepared some for salvation and some for destruction. In order to show the brightness of his mercy and glory against the backdrop of his power and wrath. That's what Paul's saying in these verses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And while these may be hard truths, they may be heavy truths, they are truths. And they are given to us by our Heavenly Father for our spiritual good. So we want to give our attention to them humbly and eagerly. Let's pray and ask for God's help to do that. Let's pray. God, we do ask that you would help us to give our full attention to these truths with humility in our hearts and with an eagerness to learn all we can from them. We are not above you. We are below you. And your word is higher in authority than our own minds, our own thoughts. So would you conform our minds and our thoughts to your word? Help each one of us to submit our thinking to you, our God. And help us most of all to see more clearly the brightness of the mercy you have shown to us in the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Romans 9, I'll start reading at verse 18, and I'll read down through verse 24, though as I said, our focus will be on verses 19 through 23. These are the words of God. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. 
We'll break this down into three parts, and you can see them in your sermon notes. First, Paul raises an objection there in verse 19. Then he gives a refutation of that objection in the first part of verse 20. And then he provides an illustration in the rest of verse 20 down through verse 23, and we'll focus on each of those three parts in turn. So first, let's look at the objection Paul raises there in verse 19. He says, You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? You, you reader, you hypothetical objector, you will say to me then, that is after hearing that God has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Do you see what he's saying? Do you see why he's raising this particular objection. If God hardens whomever he wills and none can resist his will, why then does he still find fault with those he hardens? It's true that none can resist his will. Nobody can resist the will of God. Nobody can resist the decree of God No one can change his plans. No one can edit his story. What he has foreordained is what will come to pass. What he has purposed is what will stand. The will of man is not what is ultimate in the universe. The will of God is what is ultimate in the universe. Listen to a few verses along these lines. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 6. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Job chapter 9, verse 12. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? Isaiah 14, 27. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Or as Bill read for us at the end of Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? For who can resist his will? No one. Nobody can resist the will of God. You'd have a better chance at resisting gravity right this moment while sitting in your chair than you would at resisting the will of God Almighty. Nobody can resist God's will. And it's also true that God does find fault with us. He does find us guilty of our sin. The Bible is abundantly clear on this truth as well. From Genesis 3, 6 onwards, when people sin, they are to blame for their sin. They are held accountable for their sin. They are held responsible for their sin. Of course, this rings true in our own experience, in our own conscience. When we sin, 
We know it's our fault. It's not someone else's fault. It's not God's fault. We are to blame. We are held responsible and accountable. We may try to point the finger at God or at others, but when we do so, we have several fingers pointing back at ourselves. We are guilty. We are at fault. So both of those things are true. Nobody can resist the will of God, and God does find fault with us. But that's not really what this objection is saying. It's saying that those two things cannot both be true. If nobody can resist God's will, then why does God still find fault with us? How can that be the case? Those two things can't both be true. It's either divine sovereignty or human responsibility. You can't have both. That's kind of the feel of this objection. As Thomas Schreiner put it, we must observe that the objection does not represent a humble attempt to puzzle out the relationship between divine sovereignty and human freedom. The objection manifests a rebellious spirit that refuses to countenance a world in which God is absolutely sovereign and human beings are still responsible. So it does not appear to be a humble question, but a hostile question. It's an objection to what Paul's been saying, perhaps even an attack on what he's been saying. And Paul will answer this objection with a refutation in the next verse. But first I want to say again that both of these elements are true according to the Bible. Nobody can resist God's will, and yet God does find fault with us. God is absolutely sovereign, and we are fully accountable. The fact that God's will is irresistible doesn't mean that we are not responsible. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility are both true and are affirmed frequently in the Bible. They go together. And in fact, they are often mentioned together in the Bible. Let me read a few of the key passages to you briefly. Genesis chapter 50, verse 19 down through 21. This is Joseph who is second in command over all of Egypt at the time, speaking to his brothers who had sold him into slavery over 20 years earlier. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph's brothers were responsible for their evil actions. As for you, you meant evil, Joseph says. And yet God was sovereign over their evil actions. But God meant it for good, Joseph says. You have both divine sovereignty and human responsibility standing behind the same set of actions. Regarding the crucifixion of Christ, we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, a passage we'll read this evening as we continue reading through the book of Acts during our scripture reading. Peter says in Acts 2, 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter charges the Jews 
with crucifying and killing Jesus by the hands of lawless men. That's human responsibility. And yet Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's divine sovereignty. And those two things are not opposed to one another. They're not at odds with one another. They fit together perfectly like two pieces of a puzzle. There's a similar statement two chapters later in Acts 4, verses 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of the Jews were all gathered together against Jesus. That's human responsibility. And yet they were gathered together to do whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. That's divine sovereignty. And both, again, are standing behind the same set of events. And there are many passages like this in the Bible that teach us that divine sovereignty and human responsibility are both true at all times and in all situations. They're not at odds with one another. As Spurgeon once said, when someone asked him how to reconcile divine sovereignty and human responsibility, he said, I never reconcile friends. However, none of these things are the answer Paul gives here to this objection. Why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? In fact, he more refutes the objection than answers the objection, if you will. And let's look at that now under our second main point, refutation. Look at the first part of verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Who are you, O human being, to challenge the divine being? Who are you, O finite, sinful creature, to question the infinite, sovereign creator? Who do you think you are, Paul says. And he doesn't respond to the objection in this way because he doesn't have a good answer, and therefore he's just attacking the questioner. No, he answers this way because the questioner needs to remember who he is. He's just a man, not God. He's a sinful creature, not the sovereign creator. Thomas Schreiner again. Paul retorts that frail and finite human beings should not arrogantly question God's justice and give him direction on how to run the world. God knows perfectly well how to run the world. And he is perfectly just in how he runs the world. And he has the sovereign right to do what he wills with his creatures. God doesn't answer to us. We answer to God. God isn't accountable to us. We are accountable to God. Paul refutes this objection and reminds the objector that there's only one God and it's not him. I think so many things in our lives fall into place when we remember our place in this world. When we forget our place 
things fall out of place. We are not the master, we are the servant. We are not the king, we are the subject. We are not the general, we are the soldier. We are not the creator, we are the creature. We're not the center of the universe, God is. Everything doesn't revolve around us, everything revolves around God. When we think that everything should orbit around us, things fall out of place. When we see that everything should orbit around God, everything falls into place. The sun doesn't revolve around the earth. The earth earth revolves around the sun. We are not the sun. We are the earth. Life is heliocentric, not geocentric. Life is theocentric. It's God-centered, not me-centered. And when we come to see that, when we recognize that, when we stop fighting that and we submit to that, then we experience peace and joy and contentment. Things fall into place when we remember our place in this world. What did we just sing together? Whate'er my God ordains is right. His holy will abideth. I will be still whate'er he doth and follow where he guideth. He is my God. Though dark my road, he holds me that I shall not fall. Wherefore, to him I leave it all. Paul continues with an illustration of his point, which is our third main point, illustration. We'll spend the remaining time on this. Look at the second half of verse 20. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? When he refers to a molder, he's referring to a potter. And when he refers to what is molded, he's referring to the clay, as he goes on to clarify in the next verse. Will what is molded The clay, say to its molder, the potter, why have you made me like this? The answer is, of course not. And Paul's point is that neither should we answer back to God. Kids, I wonder if, if you've ever been drawing something on a piece of paper, and all of a sudden the piece of paper said, hey, don't draw that on me. Or have you ever been making something out of Play-Doh and all of a sudden the Play-Doh said, why are you making me into that shape? No, of course not. When you're drawing on a piece of paper, you are the drawer, not the paper. And you have the right to draw whatever you want on that paper. Or when you're making something out of Play-Doh, you're the maker, not the Play-Doh. You have the right to make whatever shape you want out of that Play-Doh. It's kind of like what Paul's talking about here in this verse. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? No, because the molder has the right to make whatever he wants out of what is molded. God has the right to do whatever he wants, whatever he wills with his creatures, with what he has made. Isaiah 45, verse 9, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? 
or your work has no handles? Then verse 11, thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? Isaiah 29, verse 16, shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say to its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? God is the potter, not the clay. We are the clay, not the potter. God is sovereign, and he has the sovereign right to do what he wills with his creatures. God has complete freedom and absolute authority over us to do with us what he wills. Now, to be clear, we're focusing on divine sovereignty here, but we can't lose sight of human responsibility as we do so. All this divine sovereignty doesn't nullify human responsibility. Whenever we think about divine sovereignty, we can't lose sight of human responsibility. Whenever we think about human responsibility, we can't lose sight of divine sovereignty. It's like a mother watching her twin toddlers run around on the playground. She doesn't focus on just one of them and forget the other. Whenever she's watching one, she always keeps an eye on the other. That's how we should be when it comes to divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We always need to keep an eye on both. So even though divine sovereignty is being emphasized here, God is the potter, we are the clay, we cannot lose sight of human responsibility. We are, of course, more than just clay. We are human beings made in the image of God with the ability to make choices and the responsibility of accountability to those choices. We're more than just clay. This is a brief analogy, not a full anthropology. And all analogies break down at some point. But nevertheless, we should try to hear the point of the analogy instead of focusing on all the ways the analogy breaks down. God is the molder. We are what is molded. God is the potter. We are the clay. Paul continues in verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand? For glory. So as the potter has the right over the clay to make one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use, so God has the right to make vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and to make vessels of mercy prepared for glory. That's what it says. God has the sovereign right to do what he wills with his creatures and he has prepared some for salvation and some for damnation. And he has done that in order to show the brightness of his mercy and glory against the backdrop of his power and wrath. 
want us to think about what it says about vessels of wrath here, and then what it says about vessels of mercy, and then we'll draw to a close. First, regarding vessels of wrath, it says that God has made some to be vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. This is a hard truth. This is a hard pill to swallow, but we need to take it. We need to take it in. Proverbs 16, verse 14, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. 1 Peter 2, verse 8, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Jude 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The Bible says that the Lord has made the wicked for the day of trouble. The Bible says that those who disobey the word were destined to do so. The Bible says that ungodly people were long ago designated for condemnation. God has written the story of the world, and like all good stories, there's some bad guys in the story. We're all bad guys by nature. But God in his grace makes us good guys through Christ. But there are bad guys who remain bad in the story he's written. There are vessels of wrath that he has prepared for destruction. Side note on evangelism. This doesn't mean we shouldn't evangelize. Because we don't know who the vessels of wrath are. The person you're trying to share the gospel with may actually be a vessel of mercy. And God may use your witness to save them like he used someone else's witness to save you. And the person you're trying to share the gospel with doesn't know if they're a vessel of wrath. Only God knows. All they need to know is that they are a sinner in need of a savior and that Christ is the savior being offered to them. And if they turn from their sin and trust in Christ, they will be saved forever and have eternal life. So looking at it from above, through the lens of divine sovereignty, yes, God has made some to be vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. But looking at it from below, through the lens of human responsibility, God uses our evangelism, feeble though it may be, to save people. He uses our weak witness to unite people to the strong Savior. Why did God make vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Paul says it was because he desired to show his wrath and to make known his power. Like with Pharaoh, back up in verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
All of God's attributes are glorious and worthy of our praise and admiration. Not just his love, but also his wrath. Not only his mercy, but also his justice. And he displays the full range of his attributes in his works. His works of creation and providence. His works of salvation and judgment. And he doesn't leave anything out. He reveals the full color spectrum of his attributes. And he doesn't leave any colors out. And in this, he shows his wrath and his power. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? But there was a deeper reason he made vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And we'll close with this. Look at verse 23. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. He made vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to show his wrath and power, but he did that in order to show the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. One author wrote, when the vessels of mercy perceive the fearsome wrath of God on the disobedient and reflect on the fact that they deserve the same, then in a deeper way they appreciate the riches of God's glory and the grace lavished on them. When we realize that we deserve to be vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, then the fact that we are vessels of mercy prepared for glory shines all the brighter. Like the rays of the sun shine all the brighter when they are seen against the backdrop of a dark and cloudy sky. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. As believers, by the grace of God, We are vessels of mercy that he has prepared beforehand for glory. That's amazing. But it's even more amazing against the backdrop of God's powerful wrath. It's even more amazing compared to what we deserve. One author wrote that the mercy of God would not be impressed on the consciousness of human beings apart from the exercise of God's wrath just as one delights more richly in the warmth, beauty, and tenderness of spring after one has experienced the cold blast of winter. Because there is such a thing as the coldness and darkness of winter, the warmth and brightness of spring is all the more delightful. 
isn't it? So we may not understand everything there is to understand about all this. In fact, only God does since he is infinite and infallible and we are finite and fallible. We may not understand everything here, but we can rejoice and shake our heads in wonder that somehow, by God's mysterious and marvelous grace, we who deserve the coldness and darkness of his wrath bask in the warmth and brightness of his mercy. Praise God. Let's pray together. God, we praise you and we thank you for the brightness of your mercy. Help us to take to heart and to take in all we've heard from your word this morning. And most of all, to be freshly amazed that you would show mercy to such as us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's take a minute during the meditation on the word to think and pray about what we've heard.